research has also shown that VCs are more likely to ask male entrepreneurs promotion-oriented questions and women prevention-oriented questions. So when we talk about that, when we talk about promotion-oriented questions, those are things that really revolve around achievements, advancements, market opportunity, the ideas, you know, really being able to talk around the prospects of the business while women entrepreneurs are given more prevention-oriented questions that are focused on responsibility and risk management, you know, having to really navigate those kind of what could go wrong with the business. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, your host and resident storyteller, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. Welcome back, friends. We have another inspiring entrepreneurial journey to share today. Mandy Price, CEO of Canaries, Inc., I actually learned about Mandy's work through HubSpot's Spiraling Up series. It's a docu-series that follows unicorn entrepreneurs, and I'll actually link the episode in the show notes. It's so good. After watching the series, I had so many burning questions for Mandy, so I was happy to have the opportunity to interview her for the show. Before we get to our conversation, I'll tell you a bit more about Mandy. Mandy Price is an advocate for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. As the CEO and co-founder of Canaries, a technology company focused on providing the tools organizations need to create long-term systemic change around DEIB challenges. In 2018, Mandy and her co-founders started Canaries because they knew that data could help solve DEIB issues and inequities. Despite Black women receiving only 0.06% of venture capital funding, Mandy has been able to raise more than $10 million in VC funding to help companies advance and measure DEIB within their organization. In just four years, Mandy has grown Canaries from an idea to a category industry leader in DEIB that serves major customers like Yum Brands, Silicon Labs, the Chuck E. Cheese Corporation, and 7-Eleven, just to name a few. She is a sought-after speaker and has been featured by notable outlets such as Good Morning America, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Business Insider, and more as a leader in DEIB technology, sharing her personal story and unique insight to create more inclusive workplaces. Mandy is a powerhouse, a role model, a purpose-driven Black woman, a former law firm partner. I saw parts of my story reflected in her journey, and I just loved our conversation. I can't wait for y'all to hear it, so let's get to it. All right. I'm so excited to have Mandy Price on the podcast. Mandy, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on No Straight Path. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Let's start from the beginning. Can you tell us about your childhood, how you grew up, your upbringing, and perhaps some of the values that your family instilled in you? Sure. So I grew up in DeSoto, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. And it is now a predominantly Black city. So when I grew up, it looked very different than than what it looks now. I was one of only two Black students in my entire grade. So not class, like grade. Um, And so by the time I graduated from DeSoto High School, the demographics had changed drastically. And so when I was in my senior year, the kind of demographics of the school were roughly around 50% Black students and roughly 50% 
white. We did have a small Asian population and same thing with Latino, but it wasn't very large. The two primary groups were black and white. And so like many other suburbs that we've seen within the U.S., DeSoto had uh, experienced white flight from the time that I was there. So we saw that a lot of the families that we had kind of grown up with had started to move to South Lake and Capel and those kinds of school districts. So, you know, that really had a big effect on my upbringing and around the way that I saw race and saw the way it really changed the way people felt about our community and our environment. And, you know, my parents were always very good about kind of ensuring that we understood and were prepared to navigate the world around us. So, you know, some of my earliest memories are watching PBS and Eyes on the Prize and and kind of different documentaries around a civil rights movement. And so a lot of those experiences is really what inspired Canaries, you know, be it some of the challenges that I went through in high school to the experiences that I had when I was a student at UT Austin, right, where that is really when I can really start to put my finger and say, this is when I started to really organize around diversity, equity, inclusion. When I was a student on campus, we had an MLK statute that was erected. And the statute was egged all the time. And so the president of the university had put in place a racial respect and fairness task force. And I was one of the students that was appointed to really look around how the university could help to promote an environment of inclusion and belonging, really to start to look at the policies and practices of the university as well, to try to ensure that um, it was really cultivating uh, the kind of climate that it wanted to. And so our work led to the creation of the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement there at UT Austin. So it really was kind of all these childhood experiences and kind of the experiences that I had when I was in college as well that led to the kind of those first seeds being planted around canaries. Yeah, definitely can see the seeds. And just from a personality perspective, because the entrepreneurial personality is a bit different, I think, or it's challenging to get into this work. I'm curious about how you were as a child. How would your family even describe you? So I've always had a lot of tenacity. So I have always been pretty studious, but I think they would describe me as someone who doesn't give up. So I think in order to be an entrepreneur, you have to have a credible amount of grit and have that type of tenacity because you have a lot of uphill battles as a founder. And I think that that has really served me well over the years. That's wonderful. And so you had all these seeds, you were planting these seeds when it came to the diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging work. And I'm curious about your decision to go to law school, to practice M&A law, you know, how did you make that decision? Did you feel like it was aligned with what you wanted to do initially? So I've always had an interest in business. And, you know, for many years when I was practicing law, I was representing private equity firms and doing public company M&A. So if you look at my transcript from law school, you will see like secure transactions in M&A, but then you also see like race relations law, right? With Professor Kennedy and you'll see law and civil rights and you'll see both things on my transcript. And it's kind of like 50-50 around the classes that I took because I've always had a passion for these issues that had 
so much of an effect on our society and our democracy, right, uh, on our country overall. But I didn't ever really know how to tie them in. So I was really drawn to business and like those issues as well. And so for many years, I just kind of was able to kind of have my heart pursue both of those passions by doing the work that I did at the law firm and then doing a whole bunch of pro bono work. So I was on the board of the Texas Civil Rights Project and was the head of the Black Bar here and, you know, did all of these other kinds of things to fill that work on the void that I wasn't being able to do during my everyday work. And it wasn't until Canaries that the two kind of passions made sense around how do we advocate, right, for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in a corporate work setting. And so this is really what was able to align those two passions and be able to pursue them simultaneously. Yeah, because we can have so many different interest as humans, and we're definitely dynamic. So I love how you were able to pair that for so long. And I want to know about that pivot. You know, tell us about the story when you decided to leave your legal practice to start Canaries. Was there a particular story that inspired that pivot? Walk us through that process. So I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. You know, when I started out my career, I went to law school to be a lawyer, you know. And so when I started law school, didn't exactly know what I wanted to specialize in. But after we call it summary, right, in big law, after I had done a summer associate after my 1L year, I knew that I really wanted to focus on transactional work. I knew that I most likely wanted to do private equity banking or some other kind of transaction work, but really the focus being private equity or M&A. And so it was my own experiences that I had in the workplace that really inspired me to co-found Canaries uh, in the desire to really change the world around me. It really, I think, started to cement once I had my kids. After I had my daughter, I kind of grown used and accustomed to the way the workplace is, you know, and so I kind of just started to kind of indoctrinate myself around, okay, well, this is how you kind of navigate these various scenarios. Like many other professionals, I've been a part of programs like inroads and different things that kind of help you as well as far as how to navigate kind of corporate spaces. And so I felt very comfortable in the sense of when there were challenges or things like that. It, some, I felt like I had uh, been given the tools to kind of understand how to deal with them. But then once I'd had my children, that's when I started to kind of just after the years and years of dealing with the same things, really started to feel like I wanted to not have to do that same type of training and equipping my children on how to navigate these spaces that we knew that were broken. wanted to really focus more on fixing the systems themselves. So really started Canaries six months after I had my daughter. Maybe it was maybe she was nine months. It was really close after that because I felt like I had had so much of the background of not only helping my own law firm with their diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. Same thing. I was on the women's task force of the law firm that I was at and had seen a lot around the challenges and struggles that they had when it came to how to approach these issues. But then also a lot of the research that I had done when I was in law school the Harvard Civil Rights Project was there. And so I hadn't moved to UCLA at that point. And so did a lot of research around how organizations need to be structured and set up to promote diversity, equity, inclusion as well from a systemic institutional standpoint. So I knew that I had the foundational kind of 
basis. And I felt that organizations really weren't focused enough on the data, that most of the data was just hiring data and around talent acquisition. So really thought that if we could help organizations to really have that framework, the benchmarking, the data that they need to have a holistic diversity, equity, inclusion strategy that that wasn't just focused on hiring, that we could really start to build a bridge between employees and employers where concerns could be addressed safely without that fear of retaliation. And that really was the driving point was wanting to ensure that we were creating something that would make the workplace better and create a better future for my children. And I knew that we could do it in a way that wasn't kind of the programmatic or just the hiring focus that we had seen in so many other organizations. I love that. I love that. And, you know, it's a big risk. And, you know, can you talk to us about the thought process? You have co-founders. I believe you're working with your husband. How did you convince him to sign on to this project? How did you get funding? Tell us about that journey. Because I also, I don't want to stereotype lawyers, but often we are risk averse and jumping into a startup after you've already arguably made it in the legal world as a law firm partner. So I did have to convince my husband. Looking back now, I think it didn't take much convincing. It wasn't like it was a year or months and months, but he was skeptical, right? Because we had just bought a house. We had just had our second child. And so this idea of, okay, now let's both quit our jobs and start this company that we have no idea if it's going to be successful. But what we do know is we won't be making any money, right? Was something that, you know, it just took a, a minute to kind of think about and get on board with. But he has... I would say maybe two weeks. And then he was like, let's do it. So he is incredibly passionate about what we do as well. And I think given the experiences that he also had within the workplace, it was something that we were excited to be able to partner together to make this type of change. So I would encourage though, anyone that is making the leap to try to prepare because it is incredibly difficult from a financial standpoint. You know, I think when we kind of made the leap, we were thinking, okay, it'll probably be a year before we can have a salary. It was way longer than that. It was more like close to three years. And so I think it's important for people to really understand the amount of time that will take before there's any type of stability from a financial standpoint. Yeah, no, I think that's Great advice. And is your husband an attorney too, or what kind of corporate world was he navigating? So he had came from biotech. He came from pharmaceutical, that field. So he has a science background, biology and chemistry. So very different background than what I had, but still very familiar with those challenges given the kind of big pharmaceutical company that he worked for. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I love that. That's such a Amazing story, just coming together, quitting your job, starting a company, obviously has its challenges. And I am curious about some of the pain points that you've experienced in your entrepreneurial journey thus far. There is a lot of disparities that we see and barriers for Black and Latino women founders when it comes to venture capital. You know, our company is obviously about dismantling any type of systemic inequities that we see. And we encountered a lot of those when we start to look at the venture capital and startup uh, space. And so, you know, when we look at organizations like Project Diane that track this data, they show that less than 
1% of funding goes to Black women. So some of the statistics they've shown is 0.64% of venture capital in 2018 and 19 went to Black women founders. And so it has been a challenge to kind of be able to raise capital. And we know that there's a lot of bias that exists right within that process as well. Not just the kind of structural inequities that exist with respect to warm introductions and, you know, having to be introduced to VCs. That has also affected a lot of founders that are not in San Francisco or on the coast. And so, you know, just being able to be connected to the funds themselves. But then we know that, you know, research has also shown that VCs more likely to ask male entrepreneurs promotion-oriented questions uh, and women prevention-oriented questions. So when we talk about that, when we talk about promotion-oriented questions, those are things that really revolve around achievements, advancements, market opportunity, the ideas, you know, really being able to talk around the prospects of the business while women entrepreneurs are given more prevention-oriented questions that are focused on responsibility and risk management, you know, having to really navigate those kind of what could go wrong with the business. So if you're talking around promotion, the opportunity of your business, that leaves you with a very different feeling, you know, at the end of a pitch than kind of just answering prevention oriented questions. So we really tried to ensure that we answered questions that we were given, but then also be able to turn those into promotion oriented questions to answers and be able to talk around the true market opportunity that exists within our business as well. I love that. I love that. And can you tell me a little bit more just about Canaries and just even the idea regarding the name and perhaps case study or an example of how you've gone in and worked with the company and how you've tried to really solve the DEI issues with the data? Yeah. So our name actually comes from Canary in the Coal Mine where we are, just like Canaries, we're taking the coal mine to ensure workplaces were healthy. We're doing the same thing. We want to be that first alert and ensure that we are being proactive instead of reactive when it comes to DEI. So the name comes from that, but it also Lonnie Guineer was one of my professors when I was in law school, and she had a book called Miner's Canary, which was kind of also around how do we look at certain communities and ensure that they're signaling for us that something is maybe awry within the organization or with, you know, she made it into the broader overall democracy context as well, is from that context of how do we ensure that we are monitoring, looking at the health of the entire organization and being that first alert. And then with respect to, you know, going in and working with a company, you know, how does your process work? I am really curious because I know DEI is just, it's a tough area. It's a tough area to try to convince people that it's important, even if they say it on the website, to actually go and do something that's systemic, that's actually going to change things. And so I'm curious about how you actually go in and work with companies to affect change. So what we do is we usually start always with an assessment. We'll sometimes get companies that will ask us to kind of, you know, come in and do something outside of an assessment. But what we do is we have our software tool integrates with their various other systems. So their HRIS, their ATS, we ingest data from those systems, and then we deploy our own assessments. And so um, once we do those assessments, then they're able to use our dashboards to provide data and insights into various areas of their organization around really helping them to have a more targeted and focused approach 
to their DEI. So they're not just guessing, right? They're not just going off gut feelings. They're able to say, as we look at this specific department, as we look at this geographic location, this is what our DI strategy is going to be. These are the things that we're going to roll out within the organization because it's based off what the data is telling us. So usually when we're working with organizations, we are helping them measure outside of gender and race because that's usually, again, their focus has primarily been on gender and race, but then not even looking at it from an intersectionality basis. So we help them have that intersectionality lens, but then also usually doing self-ID campaigns to help them really think of all the multivariant diversity components. So starting to look at things around caregiver status so that we can have strategies in place if we see things where um, people that may be parents or have dependent care or things of that nature uh, to provide that support. Same thing as we start to look at disability and neurodiversity. And so it's really helping them to have a holistic strategy when they start to think around DIB and how to ensure that they have the support systems in place to support their employees. Okay. That's great. That's really great because you're right. It's probably been so narrow. And so to have that holistic view, I think is extremely important. It's more nuanced that way. So I want to know if there is a particular experience in your career, in your journey as a Black woman navigating these spaces that really sticks out, that inspired the DEI work or further, you know, inspired the work that you are doing now? I have tons of stories. So, you know, I remember being asked if I got into Harvard legitimately. I remember going to meetings with clients and being called a diverse partner. Like that's how I was introduced to clients. There's just so many, right? There's so many stories of, of things that have happened. And so that's where I say over the years, right, you can kind of take the punches, but over time they start to wear on you where you say, how long am I going to have to keep, you know, having to encounter this over and over again? So, you know, when I was, I think, a little bit more junior in my career, you know, you could kind of say, well, maybe I don't have the experience yet, or you could kind of think, well, these things are happening for some other reason. But then once you're still a partner and you still experience those things, and I tell you, I still talk to folks that are very senior within their careers and still have these challenges and these experiences with microaggressions, it becomes clear that it has nothing to do with the experience level I have or how, you know, kind of my seniority within the organization. It, it really is around how do we ensure that we're creating the systems and the processes in place to lessen the effect that any type of bias does have within the organization? So, you know, it's I think I'm always struck when I start to talk with other individuals because it's a immediately, oh, I have that same story, you know, where I've talked with lots of other individuals that also went to Harvard Law and they're like, oh yeah, I get asked all the time around oh, you went there or questions around, you know, kind of their degrees, which is really baffling, right? Anyone that's worked within a work environment knows that people maybe ask you that a year or two years from when you graduated. But once you've been practicing law for 20 years, you know, it's really kind of no one's, why are people asking you about your degrees, period? Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. And I am just curious if there is any life event that's had a profound impact on who you are as a person. Life impact. There's been lots of things that have happened in my life that has had an impact on 
who I am. I think, you know, having, like I said, my kids was a huge difference as far as really wanting to think around how do I want to spend my time? You know, I felt like that was good at my job, but I didn't love my job and really wanting to dedicate my time to something where I felt that I really loved what I do, that I was excited to wake up every morning and do it and feel like I was doing something to make the world better for them. I think that one of the big challenges that everyone has, right, is that work is a part of your life, but it's not your life. So how do you navigate work with all the complexities and difficulties that come with just living? So, you know, the challenges that come from demands from your family, you know, my mom passed away a year and a half ago, I was going to say it's almost two years, but about a year and a half ago. And so it was extremely difficult to kind of navigate that loss while also fundraising and running a company and everything else that was going on. So I think the main thing is always remembering, right? When, be it your colleague, be it kind of individuals that you're working with, that Everyone always has other things that are going on in their life. And so how do we create the right support system, structures, things like that to allow people to have that support when they need it and thrive in the workplace? Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing that. I certainly can relate to that. And it's so important. It's that's something that really triggered my interest in creating more human-centered workplaces because my mom also passed away about two years ago. And I remember being in the law firm and thankfully having supportive people around me. And I still remember to this day. And I remember being on particular cases where thankfully there wasn't anything going on in my life and not being supported. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, if I didn't have that support, how would I have been able to even make it? through this time, because most of our life, unfortunately, like a lot of our life, we're working and we are carrying so many other things. And that's what's really like even sparked the idea for a lot of the work that I'm doing was trying to figure out how do I balance personal life with work? How do we create systems that better support who we are as humans and as people and not just attorneys and not just whatever, insert whatever career, right? Because we're more than that. So I just love the work that you're doing. And I love talking to women like you who are, you know, a little bit more seasoned (laughs) and further along in their career and how they've navigated that because it is a challenge. And my question to you is, what advice do you have for organizations to better support people and DEI work? So... I think it's critical that organizations invest in DEI. When I say invest in DEI, that means really have resources, really have a budget, have trained individuals. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with employees that say they were maybe tapped on the shoulder to do this work, right? They don't have the background. They don't have the experience. DEI isn't something that you can do just because you're passionate about. You know, we had to build a team here of DI experts. We had to build data scientists. You know, we had to build that team that had that expertise in organizational psychology and all these kinds of backgrounds to really ensure that we're looking at this from the evidence-based research that exists. And so I think the idea of someone saying, oh, I like money, right? And I'm going to be the CFO, would no organization would do that. They would say, what? You know, you have to be trained. And so I think it's 
critical that organizations really have the staff and the resources that they need to support DEI. And that is something that I still think is a challenge. We've seen a increase in DEI roles, and then now we're seeing a decrease in DEI roles, but seeing still the investment and the intentionality in around ensuring that the people in those seats are supported and have not only the resources, but the background as well to ensure that they can be successful. Because having that is key to ensuring that the organization is successful in their DEI journey and that the employees, right? Because DEI isn't about just underrepresented employees. It's about ensuring that we are creating those support systems for all employees to feel included and like they belong and that we're creating a fair workplace, right? It's really rooted in fairness. Like when we talk around, why should you care about DEI? You should care about DEI because we're saying, how do we ensure that no matter what my background is, no matter my identity, that I have the same opportunities here as everyone else does. And that is something that every workplace should want and should aspire towards. Exactly. DIB work is just so important. We need to take it seriously. We need to invest in it. And speaking of investing, you were clearly able to get others to see the value in the work that you're doing. So how did you fundraise? What was that process like? So that process is lots of spreadsheets, tracking and looking at the firms that are interested in our space. So we look at companies that have shown investment within diversity, equity, inclusion, tech, HR tech, looking at B2B SaaS. So which, you know, organizations are also, which VC firms invest at the stage we're in, right? So the firms that we talked to when we were at the siege stage were different than the series A, because usually folks, they have a certain investment thesis. So they may invest in companies that are pre-seed and they're writing, you know, to $500,000 checks. And so we mapped out a very detailed kind of investor list on investors that we thought had the background, the expertise, the operational experience that we needed to kind of guide us and help us as we grew the company. And so we would start with that list. Then we would go out and like I said, it's based off warm introductions. So then you have to find someone that can then introduce you to those individuals. And so it is a very long process, but we are very grateful for the warm introductions that were made on our behalf for the investors that we were able to connect with and folks that kind of have understand the vision of what we're trying to do. One of the things I often, you know, the way we found investors when we were early on was very different than now. And I guess maybe it's not different, but I guess my mindset is very different. When we first started, it was much more around how do I convince people of my idea? How do I help them understand what I'm building and kind of talking people into it where it's much more now of how do I align myself with the investors that understand what I'm building that share that same vision, because you really want to be aligned. You don't want to have someone that thinks this is just the new hot trend that I'm jumping on, or something that they think that, you know, is is the flavor of the month. You really want someone that believes in you and your company and your vision. And so now if 
you know, I'm talking with investors and it's really clear that we're not clicking. We're not aligned. They don't understand what we're building, what we're trying to do. It's like, that's the best thing I can, can have <laughs> a quick no. And to know that, Hey, this isn't going to work. We don't really see things eye to eye and approaching this the same way. And so I think it's really key and critical that you align yourself with the right investors as opposed to just taking money, because that can put you in a situation where you actually have a lot of conflict because you and your investors aren't aligned on the long-term goals and vision of the company. Yeah, no, that's great advice. And you've already provided a lot of just small nuggets that are very helpful for entrepreneurs. Do you have any other advice that you like to share with people? My main thing is don't lose sight of your vision and mission. It can be very difficult. I know we're talking about fundraising and I know you know we talked about some other things too, but there's a lot of things that happen when you're running a company. I can really feel impossible at times, but I think if you keep your vision and your mission at the top of your mind, you'll reach a turning point. And so there's been many sleepless nights, many times where I thought, I don't know how we're going to get through this particular hurdle. You know, it really is that tenacity and grit and being able to leverage our advisors, our investors, those relationships that we've made. And so I would say, in addition to never losing sight of your vision and mission is to make those connections to ensure that you are, you know, people can tell when you're authentic. And so really making those meaningful connections because you never know how that's going to impact you later on. Yes. Keep the mission and your vision at the top of your mind and definitely making those connections, meaningful connections is very helpful advice. And so you did mention earlier that one of the greatest challenges that everyone must deal with is that work is just part of your life. It's not your entire life. And you have to navigate doing work while managing all of the complexities and difficulties of just living. And so I'm curious, how do you actually do this? I know it's a cliche question, but how do you balance work and life? I don't balance it. So, you know, I think that people, and it makes sense because it's something that a lot of people struggle with. There's like a magic formula. There's no formula. It's a struggle. I mess things up all the time. You know, I forget my daughter has a thing called Rotunda Rocks. Like I missed it, you know, last month. And it's like, she was saying all the other parents were there. I'm just like, I'm sorry, you know, mommy, she usually tries to have everything on her calendar, some kind of way that slipped by her and, you know, miss when, you know, they're supposed to be dressed like a certain day at school or those things happen. And so I think you just kind of have to realize that you're going to mess up. You're going to, you know, make mistakes just like you do with everything else. And, you know, they get it, you know, you apologize for it. And she said, I know you're busy, mommy. That's fine. You know, you're going to be at the next one. And she, she knows I will. So I think it's, important to that our kids understand what we're doing, you know? So I always say to them, you know, mommy will always make sure that she is going to be at the things that you need her to be at. But, you know, mommy and daddy are doing something because we want to make the workplace and make the world better. And we talk about bias and we talk about race and, you know, they went to a Jewish preschool that was very good around teaching around bystanders and speaking up and upstanders. And so they have all of this kind of foundational work of understanding that we have to work to make sure that things are fair and equal. And I remember my son 
coming home because they had to do a biography at school. And he said, he was like, everyone else picked man. I picked woman. And he was like, because I wanted to make sure women's stories were told as well. Right. Mm -hmm. We do this work and talk about our work. And I remember this was several years ago because he's eight now. But he was like, did you know that men and women used to not have the same rights? And I was like, yeah, buddy, I, I did know that. And we're still fighting, right? When we start to think around equal pay and things like that, that that's what mommy and daddy do, right? We're trying to make sure that things are fair for everyone. And so they love it. And they love the fact that, you know, if we're working on the weekends, they understand the bigger vision of what we're doing. That's great. I love how you have that open communication because what you're doing is a lot and it's a, there's a bigger, greater mission. And so I'm excited to see where it goes. I am so happy that you came on the podcast. I usually end with final thoughts. If you have any final thoughts to leave with the listeners, please share. I would just say, give yourself a little grace, especially, you know, anyone that is a parent or caretaker. We've seen an extreme increase in caregiving responsibilities during the pandemic. And I think it's important, right, for people to know that they're not going to be perfect, right? And you got to be able to give yourself that grace and to ensure that um, you're not putting that type of pressure on yourself of perfection. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember, you're not alone.